Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. On Tuesday's episode, I started talking about this giant elephant in the room within the fraud prevention industry. I know that we're not alone. I know that cybersecurity also has similar issues, too. I think a big part of it is just misunderstanding each side, both side, so to speak, merchants or practitioners or marketplaces or fintech or banks or whoever a solution provider's prospects are or who they want their clients to be and those clients themselves. Oftentimes they need each other, right? It's very important unless you are a ginormous company, you know, one of the top 10 in e-commerce who have been able to build their own solutions and tools and models and have their own set of data scientists and engineers, et cetera, to continually maintain that product you need to rely on providers. And even in those cases, right, you still need data enrichment and other solutions to help you make the best informed decision you can. So I wouldn't say it's a necessary evil at all. In fact, it's just necessary. And I know I've said this before, but up until the last mm, probably five to seven years or so, the solution providers I can think of, especially on the sales side, often were peers and friends and, and colleagues of merchants and would talk with each other and all of that. But I think the real tipping point from my perspective has been all the VC money, which is a great thing. It's allowed several new concepts to be able to be built and scaled and be able to be working and used by lots of companies. But it also introduces some pressure. I was just speaking with a solution provider this week, actually right after I recorded Tuesday's episode. And they were saying that up until as recently as two or three months ago, they were having regular conversations with their current investors as well as prospective investors for another round of funding. And that is important for several reasons. Different rounds have different benchmarks, so to speak, as far as proving that the product is something that companies or people want and need, et cetera. And so they were really on track for that. And then two to three months ago, they were informed by their current investors as well as future ones that they are pretty much suspending their SaaS, so their software as a service investments within this space as well as others because of the uncertainty of the economy. And I know that they are not the only solution provider that have had to have those conversations with their investors. I've definitely noticed a lot more pressure on solution providers, the ones I work with, as well as other ones in the industry. And that solution providers can choose to channel that pressure in different ways. I have seen some solution providers just go a lot more hardcore on their sales and their marketing to new customers. Others are, I don't want to use the word that I'm thinking of, pressuring from the merchant perspective or from the practitioner perspective. They're feeling pressure from current providers to either add additional services or in a couple of cases, providers are saying, hey, we're going to charge you extra. Yes, on your current contract. And yes, right before the holidays. But that's what's going to happen. And each situation is different. But 
Some companies are choosing to handle this stress and uncertainty. Others are being more creative and looking at their solutions and how can we repackage them? How can we expand to offer our services and our data to different organizations within the, an organization? So maybe we've just been talking to fraud right now, but actually, if we were to do this and change a little bit about that and this, this could be helpful for you know developers or this could be helpful for marketing to understand consumers. So they're thinking outside the box and those have been some fun conversations to be a part of. And then there's others that are getting really lean and cutting staff and trying to change their strategy. And that's happening in every company, not just on the vendor side. So then it's happening on the e-commerce side where it's saying, hey, we have to reevaluate our budgets. Can you go back to your current providers and have the pricing looked back over? Can you, you know, I talked about that several weeks ago, if not months ago, when all of this was first happening. The ways actually Gil Rosenthal and I had a great conversation about that a month or two ago about kind of the metaphorical couch cushions of looking under them and seeing where you can find more revenue or more savings for your company. And that's one of them. Others are needing to lean on their providers more because they're having to cut headcount or they're reevaluating their current providers because those current providers are pressuring them. Like there's so much movement happening right now, which isn't really consistent with other times like this time of year and previous years. For the last three years, we've been in uncharted territory. And as we know, even sales predictions and estimates based on years past are not reliable anymore. So everybody's handling things in different ways. I do know that there's even other outside factors that retailers, especially with physical goods, are having to consider. The cost of those goods are going up because of supply chain issues, because of other things, and their margins are getting thinner and thinner. And so some companies are trying really hard to reduce fraud, but for a different purpose, not just chargebacks, but also we have a limited amount of supply. We want to make sure it goes to good customers, but trying to balance that because the margins are much thinner than they used to be. So I'm saying all this to set the stage. Think per usual. I tried to put way too much into one episode and obviously now we're into two. So today I'm going to look and just kind of focus on two other pieces of the customer life cycle. I was just thumbing through my notes to see what else I wrote out here. So on Tuesday's episode, I talked about just kind of that first initial contact with prospect. And I had some advice for those prospects themselves as well for merchants too. And like I said in the last episode, when I say merchants, it's kind of shorthand in my mind for marketplaces and fit consumer focused fintechs and banks and e-commerce as well, obviously. It's the practitioners, it's the buyers, so to speak, in this market, in the fraud prevention technology market. So I talked about marketing efforts. I talked about kind of the first contact, the cold email, the cold call, et cetera. The next piece I wanted to talk about was just after, you know, you've had some contact, after a solution provider in sales has had some contact with the prospect, whether that's a demo call or a couple of initial calls. That's kind of the next pain point within the sales cycle that I hear merchant frustrations about. So a couple of the tips, the do's and don'ts that I have on this piece, after you've talked with the merchant, after you've figured things out, or while you're on the call, Actually, there's a few things in here that I know I put in like when you're on that first call with a prospect. The first one is don't start a call asking for their pain points. You need to earn their trust first and narrow the scope of their pain once they understand what problems your product solves. I was on a call with a client that was a, a seed round client. So they were a startup that didn't have customers yet, but had a really promising value proposition and technology. And so I worked with them for a few months while they were in that stage. 
And I introduced them to a merchant that I thought that they could help solve their problems. And I was also very keen to get the merchant's feedback because they're someone I trust and they were curious about the product. And then I also said, well, I'd love to get your feedback on how the sale goes. And the first thing the CEO did was say, well, what are your biggest pain points right now? And I know that that is in some sales books. However, when we're talking about things as sensitive as whether it's cybersecurity or cyber fraud or even payments in some ways, and especially if you're talking to enterprise merchants that have big brands, they don't know you. They're not going to, they don't know if you're going to pick up the phone and call the Wall Street Journal tomorrow. There needs to be trust throughout this entire process. I feel like that should be obvious, but I'm just going to say, like, there needs to be trust. And as the solution provider who wants the business, it's your job to build that trust and to ensure that you don't lose it, even once they become your customer. Sometimes companies think that once the contract's signed, their work is done. I really don't subscribe to that, especially right now with a lot of the conversations I'm having with some very big names that in some cases I never thought they would change providers and now they just feel like the straw that broke the camel's back so to speak. I really don't like that phrase but that's the first one that popped in my head. So anyway the other thing is if you just ask what their pain points are like that's very broad and if your solution so they don't even know what your solution does or how you solve the problem first. So in this case you need to show them yours before they will show you theirs. Like you need to provide hey this is what we provide. Would this be helpful to you? I would say go into those calls wanting to be helpful to them not oh I need to secure this deal I can already count the commission in my head like no just hey can we help you that it should be a first date it should be hey are we even a good match to go on a second date you know i'm going to convince you in 47 ways in the next 30 minutes why you need us like instead it's hey this is what we have how would that help you what else could we add or wherever you are in the stage of the vendor another don't don't ask for their organizational chart and who their bosses are and who their bosses are and who then they report to on the first or really any call let them name drop if they feel comfortable and ready to move forward and then i literally wrote my notes and for god's sake exclamation point if the fraud leader says no or they aren't going as fast as you want them to do not all caps reach out to their boss to pitch them or to disparage their staff i have said this on previous episodes so i'll try not to go into too many rants but i've been on one of those calls too this time it was well-known brand of a merchant that i was working with for an rfi and there was a particular company that they wanted to include in the rfi that i had some concerns about but they wanted to and so i'm absolutely let's include them i'll add one that i you know you may not know about that i think you'll like and you add one that you have heard from similar companies that they like and then you know we'll have one or two others that we narrowed down based on some factors and I mean, spoiler alert, they did actually end up going with the company that I recommended that they didn't know about before. But that's not important in the story. What's important is the way that these two sales reps handled the call. And it was the company that I was nervous about because I had heard frustrations with their aggressive sales tactics. And but I know that they have a good product. I know that their customers like them. So that's really a challenge. Actually, there was a yeah, I had a conversation not too long ago in the last few days where someone said, why does it seem like the product's really good? The people are bad. And if the people are great, their product isn't good or they haven't innovated or they haven't they're not adapting to new fraud trends and, and we need them to continue to 
innovate. I don't know why that is, but it, it does make life a little more complicated sometimes. But in this case, like the product was fine. It was just, I was a little nervous, but I thought, well, maybe, you know, with me on here, I don't know. I just, I didn't have this podcast yet, but I did have the other podcast and was fairly all known and stuff. So anyway, I thought that they would be a little less aggressive, but it was like textbook. They, one of the first things they asked my client, the project manager who was representing that company. And then I was on as an SME, a subject matter expert. The first thing they asked was, well, who do you report to? And who do they report to? And who do, and, and where do they report to? And they're right. And I had told them, like, don't tell them who we're doing this for because they'll just go over your head. And unfortunately, you know, the project manager felt intimidated and felt like they needed to answer. So they did and caused all kinds of problems. And I think needless to say, I mean, although there were a lot of reasons why the merchant was interested in that solution, they chose another provider because they could not believe. And actually, it ended up so bad. Like they ended up lying about the project manager and some things that she had said. I was on the call, so I know what was said and not said. And that project manager actually got let go. And that was not okay. I'm still like angry about it. It was several years ago. That project manager became a friend to me, but also was one of the best employees I've worked with internally at a company. And they didn't know a thing about fraud when we started the project. And within a month, they were saying that I was just looking back like, wow, you, like, you're an expert now. So yes, I had a personal friendship with them, but I also really thought highly of them and they did a great job. But when a phone call was made above their head, actually, a couple steps above their heads and there were things said that the person said that they didn't say but that that was the accusation that was kind of horrified at how their company was told to then was represented that wasn't how it was represented and that person lost their job and so that's not an isolated story there are several others where this has happened and it's not been okay and i rarely have heard of it going well i even know of a situation where a large company you know they're doing a proof of concept for two different solutions and kind of head to head and both companies knew who they were competing against. And when they get on a call with company A, all they wanted to know is, well, how is company B performing? And they said, well, what we need from you is to get up on this number and, and down on this number, right? So reduce chargebacks up on uh, approvals. That should have been enough to say, okay, the company B might be doing better at that than us. But instead, they just kept doing that and they got impatient. And someone very high up on their side contacted someone very very high up on the merchant side and said, hey, we heard that you guys chose us for the POC. That's so exciting. All right, let's get the paperwork. Can you get your procurement started on that? And this poor merchant is like, like the poor fraud manager is like, wait, or I think product manager, but whatever, I can't remember her title, but it's like, wait a second, we didn't choose. And now it's getting all these emails from procurement wanting to, you know, because somebody very high up in their company said, hey, we need you to get this paperwork together. So procurement's bugging them and saying, hey, what about it? And they're like, we're still running the POC. So it's because of things like this that there isn't trust in the industry. And yeah, it's not fair to the companies that aren't playing those games. But it is up to if you are a company that aren't playing those games and aren't playing stunts and you truly do want to solve problems for companies and also make money. But your first goal is that you will stand out. It can take a little bit of time. It can take a little bit of regaining trust and all of that. But you will. I've seen it many times. But do not ask for their org chart and do not contact their bosses. They are entrusted with a job. So similar to the LinkedIn post that I read at the end of yes, Tuesday's episode, that 
person said very clearly, like, don't, they were the head of their department and they said, do not contact me if someone in my organization has said no to you, because then it's making it seem like you don't trust my team and I trust my team. So that's insulting. I understand that a lot of solution providers for providers are under pressure in this industry where we read through everything. We're oftentimes inherently cynical and skeptical. We are looking at the details. We're looking three layers past what you're saying and thinking about five steps ahead. It's important to understand this industry that it's different than a lot of others. And slow and steady does win the race. And I'm not just saying that in theory. I have a pretty successful track record with the companies that I've worked with four to six months at a time on the solution provider side. So I've seen these evolutions. I've seen them work. And I've seen merchants really benefit from using their tools too. Like merchants are excited. I mean, one of the things I was worried about when I started adding sponsors to my podcast was, oh, are people going to think I'm a sellout? But actually, I've been so encouraged by how many people have reached out to me and said over this last year, you know, we've had three different sponsors throughout and very grateful to Sian for sponsoring the rest of this year. But I think each time at least one or two people have reached out and said, can you introduce me to them directly? I don't want to go through the sales page, et cetera, and just go with anyone. And they'll say, I know that you would not say anything about them if you didn't think they were a good product. And that's true. And I, I'm very grateful that people have that trust in me, but that's the trust that you as brands in this space need to be building as well. So that's something that they do notice, right? And that's that's my point. Next one is, you know, have at least a basic understanding of the unique issues that different industries and business models have. It's not just travel or retail. It's not like all travel companies have the same issues. Just taking travel, for example, there are online travel agencies that have, I worked for one, there they're very complex. They offer airfare and they, they resell airfare. They're not the airline and trip and car rentals and hotels and excursions and all of that. That's going to have a different business model and different fraud and different price point and all of that. They're going to have different issues. Then you've got the airlines. They've got their own set of issues that are complex. Then within travel, you have the hotels themselves, whether they're a chain or whether they're a boutique hotel. They're seeing a lot of fraud as well, but don't always know how to talk about it or how to navigate it in all areas. So understanding, okay, this is a hotel. They probably had this problem versus that problem. Another good, I mean, there's so many examples of this, but another good one that I know is a, you know, a pet peeve but a frustration for uh, some of the people in event ticketing, for example. There are primary ticketing agencies and there are secondary ticketing agencies, and they have very different issues, mostly because the primary owns the inventory. They can cancel that, that ticket because it's their seat and they can see a lot more, right, because it's theirs. You go in the secondary market and, you know, I spoke with Robert Kapps and Eric Bowles not too long ago, earlier this summer, about you know, when they were running the trust and safety team for StubHub. And they talked about some of the issues that they had there, right? I mean, trust was a big one, but also, and that's why they gave the guarantee. But also, how are they to know if the ticket is real or not when they're not the ones that own the inventory? How are they to know all those things? Now, they have so many things and solutions in that to solve all those problems. So it's not like they're flying blind. 
at all, but not going through too much detail, but just they're totally different. So the, one of the reasons why I bring it up is because there are more than just one primary ticketing agency. There are some that just do Broadway events. There are some that just do sporting events. There are some that just do, you know, concerts. And then there's the behemoth, but there's others as well. And oftentimes solution providers will say, hey, we have another ticketing company that works with us. So if they like us, you will too. And they're like, well, but that ticketing company is secondary. They have completely different, they have marketplace, they have completely different business model, completely different pain points. So that doesn't really benefit me. So knowing that ahead of time to be able to navigate the situation and know their pain points and maybe ask some questions within that first call of, hey, you know, I, I know when I talk to other companies that are in similar spaces as you as a primary ticketing company or secondary or an online travel agency or whatever that is, not just the bigger bubble, but the more specific and they're having XYZ problem. Is that something that you're having? You're now providing value to them to tell them like what other companies like them have and we have a relationship with them, like et cetera. And do not under any circumstance, I didn't write this down, but do not name any company names that you work with or that you are having, especially having conversations with and don't have signed contracts with unless the contract that you have with that provider that says that you can be public about it. This industry is small. We all know each other. I have seen this play out on more ways than I can tell you, where overly excited sales reps says that they're talking to XYZ or that they're working with them. So let's say we're working with, right? So that doesn't, they're not saying that they have a signed contract with them, but they're not not saying that either. And so oftentimes that's, it's interpreted. I think that's how it's wanted to be interpreted. And so the merchant will go to LinkedIn or contact me or call up their friends that they already know at that company and say, hey, what do you think of this company? And they're like, we're just talking to them. I, we don't even, we haven't done a POC yet. It's going to look real bad because A, the merchant who you said that to is going to be like, well, great. So are you going to tell other people when, that we're talking to? And then the merchant who you said that about is not going to have trust and be like, well, shoot, like if we're not even signed a contract with you and you're telling people we're talking to you, like how can we trust you to keep our conversations between us? How can we trust that you know, you with our data at the end of the line? I have seen that burn. There are a couple companies that keep doing this and I'm like, you guys are hurting no one but yourselves. Like, it's just face palm to me. I know it's good intentions. I know it's excitement. It's name dropping. But actually, if you have a solid product, you don't need to name drop, especially on the enterprise side. I don't mid market. They might want a name here or there, but like enterprise level, they really value secret keeping and trust and being thoughtful about it. So even after the contract is signed, not saying, oh yeah, we work with blah, 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 if it's not, if you're not allowed to, because that shows the merchant, how, the prospective merchant, how you're going to treat them as well. And they're paying attention. I cannot stress this enough. They're paying attention to every detail that you say and that you provide. And so it if it's something that you're stretching a little bit and it can be found out what the truth is, just don't say it. My grandfather used to say, I mean, my grandparents had a lot of sayings, but one of the things my grandfather used to say, and it's it's not profound, but it's something that I remember quite often. If you ain't said nothing, you ain't said nothing. So if you haven't said something, you haven't said something. Like, just don't say it. I'm sure there's much more eloquent ways of saying that. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. 
You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe. Without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. So yeah, a lot of things matter in what the particular issues are for those companies, whether they have a high or a low average order value. Are they catering more to Gen Z versus, you know, baby boomers, et cetera? What type of product is it? Is this something that can be easily resold? Is it on third-party marketplaces? What All those things go into how you as a solution provider can help that company. And so understanding some of those differences and what problems those will come with will really be helpful for you. One of the resources I can recommend very easily is the Practical Fraud Prevention book by Shoshana Marini and Galit Zipporah. Actually, Shoshana is going to be our guest next Tuesday, and I'm so excited on a totally separate topic. I also am hoping to be able to feature a few more merchants in specific verticals to be able to have some kind of a series on this for 2023. We're right now working with getting new sponsors and, and planning out the content. And truthfully, sometimes I'm just like, okay, what are we going to talk about today? But what I would like to do is have some themes so that I can be able to say, hey, if you have questions about this, go to episodes this through this. That is a goal that I have, but there are other ways to do it too. So doing your research, talking to current customers and asking them, like, what are your pain points? And then observing what the different attributes of their business are with that will also help you learn those along the way. The last thing I would say about this stage of the first call and, and all of that would be the be genuine. I think I said this before, but it's just it's an important point, right? Be genuine about wanting to help them. Ask for feedback on the demonstration. Be humble, not like self-deprecating or anything, but you don't need to brag. And again, you don't need to name drop. Like if you have a good product that can stand alone, like good. And if a prospect looks at your demo and is like, this just isn't a good fit for us right now. 
okay, well, when can I check back with you to see if it is or what would make it better for you or all that? And truthfully, guys, and I mean, merchants who are listening to this or practitioners who are listening to this are going to be nodding their head quite a bit because budgets are shorter, because resources are shorter in this economy and just in general for fraud, because unfortunately we're still seen as a cost center in a lot of ways. It's no longer good enough to be nice to have. You really need to be a need to have. You need to be solving an immediate problem. That's been a challenge for some of the seed companies that I've worked with over the years, getting that value prop from a, wow, that would shave a couple of basis points off here or there. That would make things more efficient. Like that would be nice sometime versus, oh my gosh, we have this problem right now and you can solve it. We will move all the mountains and the hurdles to get you implemented. So knowing that and understanding that and putting your focus on that and those companies and on the value proposition of what is a need to have, what is an immediate need that you can solve, that is going to be the way that you will make progress. When you are pushy, when you are really salesy and not just talking about the details and the data and the, the problems, it's lost on a lot of fraud providers or fraud practitioners. But it also just isn't necessary. We just want to know how does your tool work? What problem is it going to solve? Do I need it right now? Can I pay for it? Can I implement it? Like, that's it should be simple, but you know, I know that there's, and some people in sales are, are very like excited about it. You're excited about your tool. I understand that, but like try to get that excitement out before you have a phone, your first phone call. I can say that there are some solution providers that have taken the approach of like, okay, well, all right, well, let me know. And if it's a big brand, they're like, wait a second, what? Like I'm used to people sending me extravagant gifts, which I will be talking about in the next segment or, you know, doing all these things to try to get my business and really trying to like hustle and pressure me. Like, wow, the fact that you aren't tells me that like you don't need me. And then that's intriguing. I cannot stress how much the vendor merchant like prospect and sales cycle is like dating. I really can't. There's, I have like 800 analogies attached to this life cycle that I use with clients fairly often, but it is a really good way to understand it where like, would you come on that, like that strongly in a first date with somebody that you wanted to get to know? But if so, do, would you want them to respond to that and be happy about it? Or would you want to, you know, organically get to know each other and see how you can add value to each other's lives? And in this case, add value to each other's companies and business goals. Okay, so now I'm going to squeeze in a little bit more about follow-up contacts. So after you've had the demo call, then what? Number one, be patient. Try to communicate to your leadership that slow and steady and truthful and humble win the race. You can't expect a prospect to move on your timeline. There are so many factors that merchants are juggling and considering that they can't and won't always communicate. And sorry for that, it's the way it is. But I also know, and merchants, this is for you to kind of understand too, or prospects, whether that's whatever your category is. I'm sorry, like I said, shorthand is merchants, is a lot of times on the solution provider side, they're measured by different KPIs themselves. And in some cases, depending on their role, like if it's in sales, then they need to be able to show progress and they need to be able to provide their bosses with, okay, we talked this time, I sent them an email at this time, et cetera. And if they don't hear back from you, that's just kind of an unknown, right, for their KPIs. And so that's part of it. But also it's just this industry is small and we all have long memories. And I say this often, but in this case, I'm actually talking to merchants where you don't want to burn any bridges at all. But at the same time, I get it. You guys are getting inundated with emails. 
and you are juggling so many things. You always are, but especially the last like six to 12 months. I feel like every friend or and or just contact that I know that is, you know, a senior leader in fraud for large companies has just been perpetually stressed out for weeks and months. You know, a couple of them are getting sick because I think that they're just working too hard. Like it's just a lot. So keep that in mind from both sides. I guess back to the point I was making, merchants can't always communicate or tell you the solution provider for the specific reasons why they can't move on right now. Sometimes it's a budget. Sometimes it's prioritization of engineering resources. Sometimes it's just prioritization of any new changes. Sometimes it's staffing issues. Sometimes it's job security stress, right? And worrying about, well, if we add this, et cetera, like what would happen to my team? That doesn't happen too often, but I know of at least a couple of solution providers that have tried. I don't think this is a common playbook of theirs, but I've tried to use the selling point of if you buy our services, then you don't have to have a fraud team anymore. And that's really hard for a fraud manager because they're like, well, I like my team and we do a really good job. And you just came in here and said that you can do a better job than me and my team. Like that's kind of insulting. So keep that in mind too, though, that a lot of times merchants can't tell you the exact reason why. So I know that you want to know, and I know that that would help you, you know, no should be a complete sentence. That's actually a phrase that I've been trying to remind myself lately, but I still have a hard time with that one. So usually it's 20 sentences and then the word no. But in this case, when you're hearing it and accepting it, it should just be, hey, not right now, and then accept it and move on. It's just because honestly, if you keep pushing and pushing, not only will that prospect not be interested while they're at this company, the average fraud leader changes jobs every two to three years. I don't know if that is, that was from several years ago when I did a study on it. I don't know how COVID has changed and obviously, you know, layoffs don't count, but, or shouldn't count anyway, but it really is two to three years in this, in this industry. So they may have said no for this company, but then the next company they work, they might need a product like yours. Do you think that if you blew up their email and their phone, even after they said no, they're going to give you a call at their new company? Probably not. And they're not going to just say, oh, that salesperson, they're associating it with the entire company because they see it as, you know, representative. And like I said, they just don't have time. I said this, I think on Tuesday, where we're just looking for threats and you don't have time to go, okay, was it the salesperson or was it the company? There's a lot of assumptions that, well, they did this as a representative of the company. So clearly the company is okay with this. So it's the company. You know, it's good to check in as a, you know, solution provider after you've done a demo, after you've had these conversations, but don't be a stalker. And I do know I, I am very empathetic. Some of my favorite people are in sales in this industry and it's very hard for them. I mean, a couple of them have gotten really clever with how they follow up after like the third time, like, you know, multiple choice and they're all kind of hilarious. However, if you do that, then, you know, everyone's going to do it. So pick your own thing. But just know that most of the time they're not even opening the email. I, yesterday, I sent out a WhatsApp to this retailer group that I'm a part of and asked them a question. And it was about a future sponsorship opportunity with a solution provider. And I was just curious how they felt about the structure of, of what we were working on or what we were talking about. And they were kind of surprisingly said, oh, I don't care if you give them my email address because I, I usually protect those and I will still protect those with my life. But that wasn't a concern to them. But then the follow up was because we've been getting good at ignoring emails. 
it's because they're getting hundreds, guys, and they just can't respond to them. It is not their full-time job. And this might be harsh, but you're not paying their paychecks, nor should you be. So I think I've got that written down in a minute, but like the gift thing is not a great strategy. At least it, I mean, there are definitely some people who will take those gifts and who will appreciate those gifts, but I don't know anyone who is like, ooh, I chose this vendor because they gave me $300 bottle of whiskey or they offered to pay me for an all-expense-paid trip to see my favorite band in another continent. Those are true stories, by the way. Those are actual things that some people are offered because it's we know that there's a lot of money in this. But that doesn't work either, especially for companies that have very strict policies against it. But anyway, not to get too much on that. Like I just mentioned, understand that not getting a reply isn't abnormal. When I asked merchants what their biggest pain point was for Q3 of 2022, it was overwhelmingly being expected to do more with less. And if they don't have a relationship with you, they have to prioritize their time. They have to get sleep sometime. So I think hopefully that's helpful for now. I think there's also something you said about ADHD or ADD and good intentions. When I had Jared Price on the podcast before we recorded, we were talking about, you know, I was mentioning to him that I had just been diagnosed with ADHD and how like it explains so much. Like I didn't actually know all the symptoms. I just thought it was like somebody bouncing off the wall because I'd seen it in little kids. But for adults, it, it manifests differently. And I was starting to feel like, man, in my like early onset Alzheimer's, like I can't I don't remember anything. And he was like, you know, I wonder how many of us fraud fighters actually like have been diagnosed or should be diagnosed with ADD or ADHD. Because in a way you need that. You need to be able to think about six different things at once. And it can be a superpower. One of the downsides is people with ADD and ADHD are really bad at the details. I say this as somebody that is horrible at the details. It's embarrassing how bad it is sometimes where I will get an email from someone and I'll be like, okay, I want to reply thoughtfully, so I will do it a little later. And I even have like little flags set up for this email hasn't been responded to in two days, three days, et cetera. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it, but not I can't right now because I'm really bad. And I always have the best of intentions. And then I get a follow-up email like, hey, everything okay? Or, you know, that, yep, I'm going to totally write back. I just need to do follow And sometimes it happens, you know, a couple times. I don't, I'm very embarrassed by that. The reason I share that is, you know, hey, so if I've done it to anyone else, please don't take it personally. But mostly because I know that my peers, the people who fight fraud on the ground, they're the exact same way. And sometimes they'll do it to me, right? Like there is somebody recently that was like, oh my gosh, like I meant to reply to you and I kept forgetting. And I was like, I really understand because it happens to me all the time. So that's not to say that like, oh, it's okay that they don't respond. You know, I mean, I, I do think that the more contact that a prospect has had with a solution provider, they should give them the courtesy. I heard a story from a solution provider about a merchant who did a POC with them and they had everything like they had the contract written out and everything and it was like to the lawyers for review and that sales rep never heard back despite many tries on the phone and email etc that's excessive i mean that at that point like that sales rep's already like assuming that's going to be part of their metrics and a lot of sales rep get paid a lot more when they sign a deal have a contract signed than just their base salary so that I can't really forgive or explain, but the earlier on it is in the process and in the sales life cycle, then you have to understand that that's going to happen. And it sucks. Maybe you can joke around with them next time you see them at a conference, right? Like, or something like that, or move on to the next. And I, I don't know, maybe there's another strategy, but just know 
that you don't want to burn the bridge completely at all. You know, let them know that you're there when they need you and and be okay with being on their timeline. Understand that just because this is your time frame and when you reach out to them and it would work well for you, they don't have a pile of money and a ton of time and a lot of engineering resources to just drop everything and put something new in place, even if they're impressed by it. Don't be a jerk if you feel like you're getting ghosted. And again, don't go to their boss. You know, you can try to reach out once in another way, like maybe LinkedIn in or phone, but just let them know that, that they're busy, but you're there when you need them. In fact, actually, speaking of ADHD, I was talking to another merchant. I don't know when, but fairly recently-ish because I can remember it. So it was longer than a few days ago, but shorter than like a couple months ago. That's where my memory sweet spot is right now. I'm teasing. But, you know, so there was a situation actually where this merchant was saying like, oh my gosh, like I really like this company that you're working with. Like, I totally get why you're working with them. And I was like, awesome. And they were like, yeah, you know, I've heard about them for a while. And basically they are going to implement them. So when I talked to that, company later on, like, a, I don't know, a few days, week later, I was like, hey, I was talking to so-and-so. Sounds like they're moving along. And they were like, wait, what? They still have not replied to any of my emails since the conference that we met them at. And I'm like, what? They're like, yeah, it's really confusing because they looked really excited and then they were talking as if they were going to implement it soon and then nothing. And so I like ended up having another call with that merchant later, like not about this, but just something else. And I was like, hey, by the way, I'm confused. And I told them why. And they're like, oh my gosh, like, like I do this all the time, but they're like, in my head, we're going to use them. But like, he goes, I'll just kind of, he goes, I'm the guy that just randomly pops up and says, hey, I'm ready to, you know, implement now. And like, I can understand that when that happens, that's exciting, but it kind of, it goes back to dating, right? Like, you know, what if you go on a couple dates with somebody and you think things are going well and then they don't respond to any of your communications? And then when they're asked about it, they're like, oh, I mean, I was planning on getting married to them. So I just didn't think I needed to talk to them until then. <laughs> it's probably not exactly apples to apples comparison, but like just for both sides, think about the other side. And I'm like, I know I'm harping mostly on solution providers, but sorry, guys, that's usually who I hear about the most. And there seems to be more of you than there are merchants. That's not true, but it just sure seems like it lately. But I do try to be equal opportunity and I do try to see both sides and I can see both sides fairly well. There are those outliers that the repeat offenders, so to speak, that I don't have empathy for. But at the same time, they're hurting themselves more than they're hurting me. I mean, it's obnoxious for me to hear about the same company six times in a month about aggressive, like overly aggressive tactics. But it's not the end of my world. But that's six sales that they lost plus whatever peers and colleagues that they tell that to too. So it, it's to me, even though slow and steady can stink and be hard and especially to communicate to investors, et cetera, like if you, your end goal is to get a contract signed, then you need to be able to go on your buyer's timeline. You need to be able to slow and steady it and approach it as the long game and not the short game. If I were to ask, be asked like, what are the differentiators between the people that are best in sales? In my opinion, as well as in merchants' opinions, as in they reach out to them when they have a question about something that their product solves and just because they trust them and they're not even asking the product, like those people, they play the long game. The short game people, 
they don't have relationships with big companies and not anything worth writing home about. So, you know, it's also about like how you see them, right? Are you seeing them with dollar signs? Are you seeing them with like a target on their back? Or are you seeing them as a company and a person that you can help and you want to get to know them because you hope that they work with your company for a long time? You know, offer help of some kind, whether it's an introduction to a similar merchant, data on a new issue, etc. Something that will help them do their job better. That can often help with the, you know, just with the relationship building. If your company sends expensive gifts, make sure that the merchant can accept it. It can be a really big hassle for them, as I kind of suggested a minute ago, but there's one particular merchant that gets so angry, like, because stuff will get sent to them. And they're not allowed to accept anything other than a dinner if there are other companies there, other merchants there. That's it. And so if they're sent like a literally a $300 bottle of whiskey or a expensive item of clothing or whatever it is, there's a lot of things, a lot of gifts that get given around. They have to turn it in and report it to their company or they have to try to return it to sender or they have. I mean, so double chat. And like I said, I mean, those are nice. And, and sure, I mean, we all like things in the mail, right? Like there is a solution provider I did a couple favors for a few years ago and they sent cookies to my house from a really good bakery like that was fun my daughter loved it as did my husband and me too that was like as a thank you not as a hey we want to get your attention and this is how we do it I think there's also some thought that if they have to buy me really expensive gifts or if they have to take me to a super fancy restaurant to get my business like what does that say about their product and are they really putting all that money back into the product or are they putting that money on whining and dining future customers. Those are things that go through people's minds because when you're in fraud, like I said, you're not looking at everything surface level. You were looking two, three, four, seven layers down for motivations and it crosses over into every part of our life. It's not just fraud. So it crosses over into our personal relationships and into you know, when we are consumers and it crosses over into when we are working with solution providers. I think that the other thing that I would say is if you're a salesperson and you start seeing a pattern of getting ghosted after a certain stage, reflect on your approach. There are some merchants and I could probably, I mean, I could probably tell you who they are, like the ones that just don't reply and that's okay. Like just don't take it personally because again, they're so busy. But if you're seeing it all the time and all of a sudden after the demo or after, you know, whatever touch point in quotation marks it is, everyone's goes, you maybe try to reflect on that approach, right? Like reach out to a few clients and ask for feedback on your product and your service. Because it could be that merchants are talking with each other. And if your customers aren't satisfied, your prospects will learn, you know, especially on the enterprise side, because they, a lot of them talk to each other, most of them do. So, you know, if some of your customers are like being reached out to by prospective merchants, and the prospective client is like, hey, you know, I know you use XYZ. What do you think of them? And the client's like, well, you know, their account management's really gone downhill lately or they're not innovating their product. And those are two fairly common things or they're not innovating their product and they're raising their races, their prices. That is another common complaint that I hear sometimes from existing clients. That could be a reason too. Or you can try to approach one of the prospects and just say, hey, I'm not trying to sell it to you. I just would really like to understand why you didn't get back to me because I want to be able to do my job better. Now, that's only going to work sometimes if y'all start doing that, like nobody's going to answer. But, you know, like I said, onesies, twosies, okay, it's going to happen, you know, even like 10, 20%. But if everybody starts dropping off around the same point, like then maybe reflect and maybe, maybe do reach out to a couple who you think will be honest with you. That would be my suggestion. Well, guys, I made it through, I mean, like what, two thirds of the sales cycle? <laughs> 
And I'm going to stop there for now. I may in a future episode do more around contracts and POCs and all of that, if that's something that's interesting to you. Or I have a couple other ideas as well. There's definitely been some themes around how some existing customers are feeling treated by their current providers. And I know I've mentioned it throughout this episode, but there's so much more there. And I think that as solution providers are starting to having to pivot and really buckle down on expenses and make sure that your revenue is as high as it can be, et cetera. Very good opportunity is the customers that are already using your product. And unfortunately, with some companies having their eye on a finish line, whether that is an acquisition or an IPO or a merger, sometimes they lose sight of that current customer because they're chasing after the new customers for gross metrics for an acquisition or or whatever the valuation is. So that is something I'm seeing a lot. That'll probably be a future episode soonish as well. But I hope this is helpful. Would love to know what part stood out to you. What did you find the most helpful? That that helps me continue to create content for everyone and helps me know, okay, I'm on the right track because sometimes I don't know if it's what people want to know or want to learn. But at the same time, like I know that these are things that a specific topic has been asked about a lot. Now, whether you liked what I said or not is another story, but hopefully you got your money's worth, right? Oh, wait, podcasts are free. So there you go. I'm teasing. But anyway, with that, I am going to go for today, but I will be back with Shoshana Marini on Tuesday. I am really excited for you guys to listen to that episode and I'll look forward to speaking with you next week. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.